Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dying time is here. That's right, we're still talking Scream 2 on Kill by Kill. Well, greetings and salutations, Internet. It's your old pal, Patrick Hamilton, coming to you once again from a college somewhere down south. This is the Kill by Kill podcast, where we are dedicated to celebrating the least discussed component of any horror film, the characters. That's right. We're going to break down all the goriest of details of the second half of Scream 2 in the hopes that a young co-ed's untimely end is just the beginning of the jokes that we can make at their expense. And as always, there's only one person that I trust that if I need her to crawl over an incapacitated serial killer's prone body, she won't honk the horn with her elbow. The one, the only Gina Radcliffe. How are you doing today, Gina? See, that's where you're wrong. I would totally <laughs> accidentally honk the horn with my elbow. <laughs> I, I am a very clumsy person. Oh, you and me both. Uh, I I believe we've talked about some of my travails of just falling off of sidewalks. Sidewalks, <laughs> Gina. I have fallen off of platform shoes. Remember when, remember when like the Lady Care platform shoes were big sure. for a while in the early nineties? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would I would add an extra four inches to my my you know, my smallish height with those. And there was a point where I fell off of them like i just <laughs> tipped right over and 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 sprained my ankle in them oh no that's terrible yeah i, I may have been drinking but i may <laughs> not have been either not this christmas obviously but the christmas before uh walking out of one restaurant heading to another there's that a little like built-in ramp for wheelchairs and I slipped I my foot went past where the slight curb of it was and my hands were in the pockets of my overcoat so I didn't have my hands to go out in front of me when I fell over uh that looked awesome so you just like you you just like totally face planted Uh, I uh I curled up I pulled a, a Captain America Winter Soldier when he launches himself off a building and only has his shield to protect him. I did that with my right shoulder. Weirdly, I came away okay off of that one. So your shoulder, your shoulder didn't it didn't wasn't ground to a fine dust. <laughs> no, it should have been. <laughs> it's it just like you should have like stood up like a cartoon where like your arm just like shatters and falls off your body. <laughs> Yes, uh, that would have been the best possible result, but I somehow managed to walk away with that only um, slightly achy. Uh, so with only your dignity shattered. <laughs> that was gone a long time ago, Gene. <laughs> Sorry to say that. <laughs> Uh, that uh, I gave up on being cool long time ago. So we needn't worry about that. Now I'm only podcast cool. And even that is somewhat shaky ground. So, you know, neither of us would, would survive this, this climbing out of the police car over the over the serial killer, right? We'd both be dead. Oh, we'd be, I'd be fucking dead in any of these movies. I don't think I would have survived any of them. Yeah, I'm, just, I mean, I'm pretty sure I just would have been thrown into the the you know the the you know the, the mesh barrier after the car accident and just kind of like <laughs> be pushed through it like a cheese grater, like a like a like some sort of like Final Destination type death. Oh yeah, man, that that poor officer Andrews, Ew. he is still alive to yeah. work. 
<laughs> or at least his body is still alive after that. That is gruesome. Yeah, that's to, that to me. That's the worst death in the in the, in the whole movie. Yeah, it's it's very visceral. <laughs> it really is. Um, that sequence, man. When we end up, I don't know how there. I forgot about. I, I told you, I mentioned in the last uh, episode that I had, I'd only seen this once before, and it was a long sure. time ago. It, I think it was, I think I, I didn't see it in the theater. I know that I saw the first one in the theater. I did not mm-hmm. see the second one in the theater. So I probably watched this when it came first came on cable. Yeah. I didn't remember a lot about it. I remember the twist. Uh, I remember Randy's death. I didn't remember this. And I'm like, how did I forget this? This is a great fucking scene. <laughs> it's, I, it is my argument for when people kind of come at Scream 2. I, I, I'm not of the belief that Scream 2 is somehow better than the original film. I it, it, it is an improvement in specific areas. And absolutely one of them is suspense sequences, chase sequences, the the uh, little uh, frameworks that they put some of these kills in are just a level above Scream. They are. And that is, I think, the premier example of it, of the way that Craven is able to establish a small geography and tell you these are the elements at play. You have a dead cop on the hood who's still grasping a gun. So you have a loose gun in this situation. So that's already a threat. Then you have a killer who's already killed two people that right in front of you moments before who is incapacitated in the driver's seat. You have two people in the back of a, of a cop car so they can't get out through the doors. And there's a grate up in between them and the killer. So they're kind of safe but kind of not because they don't know whether or not that that ghost face can just get out of that car and open up their the one open door you know (laughs) from the outside they obviously can't get out from the inside it's just a very contained set of circumstances and it's all very complicated but he makes it clear to you and then says how will they get out of this and then makes every moment, every decision, every micro movement within that sequence mean something and communicate it to the audience, often without words. It just is one of his finest moments on film, in my opinion. Oh, I agree. And it's and it's as it also plays into you know something that I, I like doing when watching a horror movie is what would I do in this situation? (laughs) And, and it's like, I don't know. My first thought would be to just stay here, you know, wait for, you know, the serial killer to hopefully stop breathing at some point. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Maybe try to kick. He could already be dead, but I think they do kind of sense that he's still breathing in some capacity. Right, right, right. I mean, I, maybe I would try kicking out the windows in the back. I, I, I don't know, but this is definitely a, I don't know what I would do in this situation. That's a, a pretty reasonable response to the situation. Just uh, pick up both of your feet and start kicking. And eventually the amount of force will give way. It's, you know, undoubtedly reinforced, but it's not like, you know, bulletproof or anything like that. So eventually you'll, you'll get to it. But in that effort, will you wake up the guy who has complete freedom of movement you know he already has a knife and there's he has access to a gun. So you're in a real pickle there that that makes it 
in, you know, so much more difficult uh, for, for anyone to find a reasonable solution to because every choice you make leads to consequences that are out of your control and you already know that person is willing to do a lot of crazy shit just to see you dead. My only, my only issue that I have with this whole sequence is mm. I don't know which one, if it's, if it's, is it Mickey? Is it supposed to be Mickey in the car? It's got to be Mickey. And uh, th- which means that uh, Debbie Salt slash Mrs. Loomis is at the uh, AV building on campus. Okay. So I just got to say, Mickey looks pretty good as getting around all right for someone who was just knocked out in a car accident. <laughs> yeah, he's got a, a little uh, artistic dribble of blood on his forehead. Yeah, but he's like, he's just walking around. He's He's fine. Yeah. I mean, that is the one, you know, it, you're going to have to like check the box of it's a movie. Yeah, of course. Of, in- of course. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's it's an absolute trope in, in horror that that someone, you know, could get knocked out or thrown down a flight of stairs or tossed out a window or go over the hood of a car. And five minutes later, they're OK. They're fine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like- Everyone's got a level of crazy mom strength given the adrenaline happening in any given uh, scene. So the abilities that killers get once they put on the ghost face mask are pretty amazing that they never get broken or bruised. I would, I would love it in uh, scream five. If they built into it that like the person who's inside of it has like a, a, a helmet or some kind of <laughs> yeah. like modified a bike helmet so they can't get head injuries or something like that. It's like those padded suits that people wear when they train dogs. Yeah, like a bear suit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, granted, it it will disrupt some of the silhouette of Ghostface. It's usually yeah, he's a, a little portly. He's a little portly, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> what? Okay. I mean, that somewhat gives it away that that it's Jerry because you know he put on a few pounds in in quarantine. Um, well, who among us didn't? I mean, come on. Yeah, very true. Uh, but then when the reveal of the bear suit comes out, uh, that it, they can take a, a baseball bat to the chest, you know, then then that's the twist. We're talking about the second half of Scream, if you haven't, and spoilers, we're already into the second half. If you see a volume two, just know, like, we've spoiled everything. So I I don't know who listens to the show necessarily. I I guess plenty of people listen to the show without having watched the movie, and plenty don't. Is what it comes down to. I, I've been I've been told that that we describe what happens in the movie so well that mm-hmm. they feel like they have seen it. Oh, that's dangerous. <laughs> we should be put it on trial if that's true. <laughs> uh, I may want to have more freeform discussions then <laughs> if we're able to accomplish that. But we're picking things up uh, just after the death of Randy. Uh, don't worry, he shows up in the next film for <laughs> reasons. That, uh, you know, that is fucking wild that he felt I need to put this on film. Me describing what a trilogy is to modernly media literate people. That's fucking insane. But we start with Sydney in the library. I don't know, doing research. I don't know what the point is of her getting, you know, quote unquote online in the library, but uh, she's given uh, or given, she receives an instant message. Ooh, uh, Gina, what was the first instant message you received? 
it wasn't in the middle of a library. Uh, yeah. And it was later than this, too. Uh, it, for me, it wasn't until, like, oh, my God, maybe 96, 97. Yeah. Um, but all, all I can think about is, remember Pretty in Pink? Yeah. <laughs> remember, sure. remember how Blaine just sent himself a picture? Is that a picture of himself? And it's like yeah. a headshot of Andrew McCarthy. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! And I think that um, was—I think that was the same setup where it's like, oh, it can only be somebody else in the room who sends this to you. Yeah, I think the first time I received the instant message, they had installed some sort of messaging system at Universal, and I was working on Japan stuff on the theme park in Osaka, um, and I'm like, well, we could just type to each other. Oh, this is a whole different level here wow and then when uh i went to, to japan to live there and open up that park we had phones that uh allowed us to receive email and i'm like oh my god what? this is this is the next level and then they they started handing out phones that would give park numbers because you kind of have to know how many people are in the park or how many people what the wait times are at various attractions especially if you're running shows because if you're like well I don't know that I want to run this Wild West show because I have a bunch of features of it that are down. That's fine on a day that's very low population. But if you have a bunch of people in the park, you need to suck up those people and just modify the show. And um, I'm <laughs> trying to sell the people who are giving away the phones to this. I'm like, it's fine that I don't get what, but the actual stage managers and the entertainment supervisors, like they need that. And like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> well, that's part of running a theme park, folks. You got to be able to do it. And they eventually did it. And for some reason, they gave one to me, too. I don't know why. Yeah, probably um, probably put my first instant messages, like someone sending me like a movie trailer, a two-minute movie trailer. It took like four hours to download. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. That I mean, And, and, and of course, at the time, I was like, they ain't going to get any better than this. This is amazing. <laughs> I can finally watch that Scream 2 trailer uh, in, <laughs> in the entertainment offices of Universal Studios Hollywood in the middle of the night when I'm walking up and down CityWalk to make sure people have taped down their microphone cords and electrical cords so that people don't trip over them. That was a it, job of mine once. <laughs> oh, it, in, a mere, in a mere 10 hours, I could, I could have Weezer's Buddy Holly on my very own computer. <laughs> exactly. So we find out that uh, someone is sending her instant messages. You're going to die tonight, uh, which is a message that would still not get you banned off of Twitter. Weirdly. No. <laughs> and you're perfectly fine sending that to somebody. Uh, lo and behold, who else is in the library, but one cotton weary Gina, would you do a primetime interview with Diane Sawyer for just $10,000? Uh, I mean, would I had I survived a horrible massacre of all my friends? Yeah, <laughs> I mean that's the pretext is you don't have any friends left because they've all been knifed to death. But you get 10k to talk to Diane Sawyer for an hour. I mean, you know, 10k is pretty pretty low, but at the same time, and I, and I mentioned this in the last episode, she is very averse to publicity and doing interviews, but she also wants to be an actor. Yeah, and I'm thinking, Sydney, Sydney. <laughs> can i call you sid there is no way that you are ever going to avoid people asking you about this you know no yeah. matter you know you know how much of a beloved star of stage and screen you may become 
this is always going to be the first thing people are going to ask you about. It's, <laughs> it's, it's basically like Jodie Foster being asked about John Hinckley. Yeah, it, is, yeah, yeah. It, it is unavoidable. Um, well, maybe, maybe, you know, stagecraft is really only a, 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 an introductory pursuit to stage management, which later on we find out she's very adept at, especially when you perform it with a fire axe. So maybe she's like me, where she's like, I want to be an actor. And then you're like, look at yourself in the mirror and you're like, my face isn't symmetrical enough. All right. <laughs> stage management it is. That's okay. I look better bossing people around. <laughs> I just love shouting out Leiden cues. <laughs> I don't know if people have noticed, but uh, I'm my own Chatty Canty, and I will pull my own fucking string on here. Uh, and <laughs> something has to do with, I don't know, filling the vacuum of space with my voice. But yeah, I was perfectly happy going Q10, Q11. <laughs> and I would snap like a fucking asshole. Like I was, <laughs> like I was directing SNL. God, what an asshole. I mean, the problem is, is with Cotton is, you know, between the mumbly Dustin Hoffman delivery mm-hmm. and his, you know, he kind of has that unblinking stare of a psychopath, even yes. though he's not a psychopath, apparently. You know, he's just some kind of weird guy. He's just um, a goof, I think, is what it comes yeah, down to. Yeah, his body language is, you know, not very good. No. <laughs> yeah, he kind of, and it also doesn't help that Liam Schreiber's like six foot, 40 <laughs> he's so much taller than almost so, everyone so he's like cast. he he can't help but loom over everybody yeah and, and so he, it's you know his approach is not good you know the way he asks her is not good he's very pushy and manipulative and, he's and, literally physical with her yeah he's like grabbing her by the arm and like no 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 <laughs> And he he banks off of it like I'm doing you the favor by not touching you. No 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 no. Yeah, and and you know the the idea is that he's supposed to be even more hungry for publicity than Gail is, yeah. and you know to a point where you know he is seems to be quite willing to hurt people to to like physically hurt people to get his moment in the in the uh, in the spotlight. Yeah, you know, it's it's a it's a pretty good red herring. It is. Yes. It's, it's a pretty good red herring. Um, and- and it, and it ties into the, the our Mickey's sort of summation, right? Yeah. Where all all the good screams kind of have uh, a thesis that it's trying to put forth. And the first one being that the movies don't make psychos. Uh, movies make psychos more creative. Um, here, it is not by uh, the crime itself, but the trial. The trial is the real show. And Cotton is an actual example of that, of someone who has been tried, been convicted, been set free, and now wishes to have the same white-hot spotlight on him that the trial gave him. And you have a real-life, ex- you know, well, real-life, real-in-movie example of that wandering around. Right. Um and and you know it's it's a minor miracle, and I don't, I don't know how this you know if this was all always the case in the in the uh, in the original script, but he makes it to the end, and yeah. you know he's he's sort of heroic, I guess. <laughs> it's a it's an active decision and one that he's trying to constantly micromanage, um, right? Yet, yeah, he, because in a sense. He he hears he does listen to Mrs. Loomis's you know pitch to him, like listen, uh, this is a person who put you in, an innocent man in jail 
for over a year and it wasn't your fault. Now, granted, she's also killing everyone because her son killed those people and not him. So when it comes down to it, she is more to blame than Sydney in this situation. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All Sydney did was recount the information she had available to her, which was the last person she saw in contact with her mother was Cotton. So her mom saw this twitchy Dustin Hoffman, six foot one guy and said, I got to get me a piece of that. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, Leo Schreiber's pretty, I mean, he's not particularly dreamy in this movie, but you know, he's pretty I, dreamy otherwise. He got, I think he, I think he's someone that age helped a great deal. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's also got that kind of Showtime show, and you're like, all right, I might break off a piece of that. <laughs> well, he's got that. Also, got that a little bit of that late '90s floppy hair going on, and <laughs> and he's a little older than us, so he was a yeah. little he was a little old to be pulling off that hairstyle by 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 the time by the time this uh, this movie was made. Yeah, hey, he's the only good thing in Wolverine Origins. Like, damn that's... right he is. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know people are like, but 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 Deadpool, Deadpool's no. not good in that movie either. No, no he is the only good and, thing. And, and why is he the only good thing in it? Because again, like what I always say, I said this about Maureen Stapleton and the fan. Mm-hmm. He's the only person who knows what kind of movie it is. Yeah. So yeah. he's constantly <laughs> he's constantly smirking and like I can't believe the shit I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna lean into growling. I can't believe works. I'm playing a two hundred a two hundred year old like Wolfman. <laughs> whatever whatever the fuck he was supposed to be I, i'm not gonna say that you're wrong Jeannie. you may have nailed that one i'm now <laughs> going to refer to saber tooth as 200 year old wolfman from now on <laughs> i would love love for him to have a do that sort of uh mel brooks uh, one thousand year old man yeah. record, but two hundred year old. Oh, the two hundred year old werewolf. Yeah. <laughs> hey, TM, uh, kill by kill podcast. That's our idea. We're getting in contact with his management because we're gonna make this happen. He can put on the Dustin Hoffman voice. It'll be great. Oh, it'll be the best thing that's ever happened. <laughs> Um, it should be noted, however, that Cotton's attitude when being interviewed by cops leaves a little bit to be desired. Like, I can see how he got himself, I understand how he got himself um, arrested in, you know, the what happens before Scream. But if he was pulling the same sort of shit, you know, with those cops, no doubt that's why he got arrested. That's why they started building a case against him. Because yeah. he's got a poor fucking attitude. Yeah, yeah, that's that's, that's reasonable. Like, there were four bodies into this, and he's acting like he doesn't have a very solid motive, and he absolutely does. (laughs) Um, So one of the things I noticed is when uh, Gail goes over to him and says, like, uh, you need to calm the fuck down. <laughs> Maybe help us try to find who is doing these crimes. And he's like, um, no, thanks. You look over his, her shoulder, and there's this lineup of cop photos on the wall. <laughs> that all look like they were taken in, in like two minutes <laughs> in front of the same white background. <laughs> like, I've seen employee of the month plaques with more verisim- verisimilitude. 
<laughs> um, I do like the turning of the tables on Gale in terms oh, yeah. of here's where you were just two years ago. You're one of these, you know, quote unquote jackals who's simply trying to get a story. But what you're really trying to do is make someone react on camera, give you a quote. And she knows the game that's being played. And yet she really doesn't like being on the other side of it. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, you know, now you're the, you know, you're a celebrity now. You got to be, you know, you got to expect this is what you wanted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is what you were aiming for all along. And so it brings me no pleasure to say that I think this is the one thing that kind of does Gail dirty. This isn't a matter of performance. This is uh, the way the script sets it up where she basically says, I feel bad now to Dewey. And it's like, but that's not, that's not an apology. That's an honest reaction. And thank you for sharing with me. But that's not, I'm sorry. I now see the error of my ways. None of that is said. It's implied, but it's not said. Well, what's the uh, the thing that goes around on Twitter? It's like uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the, you know, you, you know, the consequences is like yeah, you know, if this if it, if it isn't the uh, you know the consequences of my actions, this sucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me, me sewing, this is super fun. Me reaping, what the fuck is this? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, she yeah, she she you know wrote a book. The book got made into a movie, so she probably made some decent money. But you know, nobody trusts her anymore. You know, people kind of you know, wrinkle their nose when they see her coming. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and- do we just you know shoot? her dirty look after dirty look and he has every right to oh, he absolutely does he absolutely he, does he was put in through the mill for her fame and and then she made him look bad in the in the in, in the book and she's not making him look any better here <laughs> to be honest with you i i just don't it's one of the things that i wish they had just gone one step further with I think you need to genuinely apologize, not say if you were offended on a notes app. This this has if you were offended on the notes app energy. Yes. The kids yes. say. No kid has ever said that. I said that, and I'm far too old to ever be considered a kid and, unless the adult is 100 years old or a 200 year old werewolf. <laughs> but they decide to get down to the bottom of it. Uh, now, uh, Gail's uh, camera guy. I wish that Joel had more of a character necessarily. He's just more of an audience surrogate of this is crazy. This is wild. I'm out of here. So you're showing one person has the wherewithal to go. I'm not putting myself in between a guy with a knife and this story. Sorry. And takes off. Um. So <laughs> that's Joel's story in a nutshell. Meanwhile, we have Dewey. Um, and this isn't, I don't want anyone to take this as a, a, a performance critique necessarily, because it's very nitpicky. But when they decide that Dewey has nerve damage to one leg and one arm, you kind of have to decide before the camera starts filming what your limitations are with those particular choices because (laughs) his rectus seems to come and go 
And I understand why. It's a lot to keep in control while you're actually acting, hitting your marks, you know, memorizing dialogue, delivering a realistic performance. You're putting yourself in that position. And I can see, like, I've got a limp or I've got this one hand that won't make a fist. But when that one hand won't make a fist also opens doorknobs and holds on to flashlights, you're kind of like, we need to make a choice here. Is it one thing or the other? Oh, yeah. I, I recently had a uh, uh, surgery on my arm, and they um, they had to do a nerve blocker. So mm-hmm. there was like a whole day where my, my arm was basically useless. Yeah. And I could... I could I could pick things up, but after a certain point, if I tried to lift, if I tried to bend my arm any more than a ninety degree angle, like mm-hmm. it would just it would just collapse, oh, and, yeah. and uh, I should have filmed myself trying to cut food because because <laughs> it was hilarious. Like like I I you know I could I could hold the fork, but the minute I tried to you know put any sort of like muscle weight behind it, like mm-hmm. my arm just went like. It just like it, like it, it, it just turned into a noodle, and yeah. and it, it's like you know it's one of those things that kind of teaches you the different and amazing ways your body works and moves. Oh sure, yeah. And that like just because you can pick up something doesn't mean you can hold on to it. No, uh, yeah. I it's just because we only have so much time with the character on screen. I think they would have behooved themselves to make a clear choice but when he can take stairs sometimes and then has to hop down them on one foot and the other (laughs) well i mean to be fair i mean dewey is violently stabbed like five or six times oh yeah and then he he survives because he they hit scar tissue Which, like, it suggests that he has, like, this carapace of scar tissue. Right. <laughs> like, forming a, a like, like, network of, of, of yeah, places like a, that you can stab him freely. Like a Quasimodo hump of scar tissue. <laughs> sick enough <laughs> that you could stab him with a, with a, a, a you know, eight-inch-long buck knife. Yeah. And he'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. He was, he was explosively bleeding out of his mouth, but he'll be fine. Right. <laughs> yeah, that, like... You've hit some, you've hit lung at that point. Yeah, and it's like some organ has been lacerated here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I feel like originally they when they filmed that, they intended Dewey to die. And then I and, think every time they show him stabbed nearly to death, they intend for him to die. And, and then like happens. at the last minute, like, you know what? We like this character. Let's let's make him live. Yeah. Let, let's they turn give themselves let's turn the option. Let's turn him into this implausibly unkillable person. I would love it if in Scream 5 we find out he dies peacefully in his sleep. <laughs> <laughs> or like some really stupid way you get hit in the head with a golf ball or something like that. <laughs> Walking underneath a tall building and AC unit fell out of a window yeah. onto him or something like that. You know, <laughs> just nothing to do with like violence directed at him. Just the circumstances we all live in, you know. <laughs> <laughs> just I mean, he's only, he's only young to die in his sleep, but that would still be, that would still be pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> just a 
friends of ours, you know, learned that their very elderly aunt had had a, a passed away, not in her sleep, but she had always spent the mornings like hanging out on her porch, uh, drinking coffee, and she had gone out to her chair, and they, you know, passed by her an hour later, and she had passed. And it just sounded like the most, like, like, that's how you, of, like that. yeah, that's how you do it, man. That's how you do it <laughs> on display in front of people in their face. Um, but that's how you do it. And uh, <laughs> it just, just felt slump like, over this, yeah, conversation, like, this conversation's over. <laughs> I, I, I've given what I, I've said, what I've had to say. <laughs> see, see, I'm going to break on through to the other side now. All right, everyone, bye. Yeah, I've had a good run. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so this leads us to what I think is one of another really great sequence in, in this in this motion picture, and that is the AV class sequence. Um, it's it's pretty fun. Like it, it takes place in two different locales that are very similar to one another, and yet the dynamic plays off of each other. Um, so you have this AV club sequence, which is where the, the original film class, film studies class play, uh, lecture takes place. And there are two TVs. One is featuring footage that Joel has recorded, and another TV comes on that has footage that would, what we'll come to know is Mickey. And then one uh, film sequence that Mrs. Loomis recorded because she was inside the van. Right. So I guess part of the deal was I will pick up B-roll of my kill. <laughs> or was she not planning on killing Randy all along? I don't know. But um, Randy had opened his big mouth. Yeah. They only notice uh, this, uh, Dewey and Gail, after they their desires take hold and they just can't keep their hands off of one another. One second longer, they've got to do it on this desk. Um, but then it turns out that uh, someone is playing this other footage and uh, Dewey goes up to the projection booth to see who's up there. That leaves Gail exposed down at the bottom which is a large chasm considering how long it takes him to get downstairs. <laughs> yeah, this so place is huge. It's really uh, big. Um, but uh, there's a couple things at play here. When they arrive at that building, they keep trying various doors and the vast majority of them are locked with the exception of two. And I have to assume that uh, Mrs. Loomis has planned this ahead of time, at, at least the projection room, because this is Mrs. Loomis. It can't be Mickey. Mickey is hunting down Sydney elsewhere. I mean, I, I you know, apparently she she just knew that this is this is where uh, this is where Dewey and Gail were going to throw themselves in each other's arms. Well, she oh, she was at least aware that they both had the footage that that Joel dropped off. So if they said, Oh, we're going to go find a place to watch this. She's aware of where they're going. So at least the, the, the film tells you how she would garner that information. Yeah. And it also puts them into a kill box because she is like, okay, here's a, here's a place with a VCR. Um, I can control where they go to by making sure all the other doors are locked. 
how she got the key, I can't tell you. But we are told by the police chief that everything will be going into lockdown. So there's that. But she knew at least how to unlock one room. And I'm not going to say the recording room is her uh, aware that they would head in that direction necessarily. I just think that was luck. But we know ahead of time that once they're aware that Ghostface is after them, they're going to have a hard time finding somewhere else to hide. Right. Um, so the it plays out in the recording studio. The dynamic repeats in the same fashion that it did in the AV room. But this time we have one room that is soundproofed from the other room. So people can see, but they can't hear. And Upon this viewing, it is my estimation that this is really a callback to Maureen's death because Maureen is in an audience and everyone is yelling for things to happen on screen and the people on screen cannot hear them because they were previously recorded. And in here, we're in a recording studio where people are yelling, hey, watch out, and they can't be seen and they can't be heard and they can't uh, change the dynamics of the situation they find themselves in, and it results in what we assume at the time, the death of Dewey. And Gail can't do anything about it, nor can Dewey warn Gail that Ghostface is after her. It's, it's a good scene. It's a damn good scene. That, that there's this window that you can't get past to warn someone of mortal danger. And again, I feel like we're witnessing that conversation between Williamson and Craven of what the role of horror films are and how we view them and does our participation in watching them and enjoying them part of the problem or is it actually part of the solution? It, you know, I mean... <laughs> am, I like, al- am I alone in, or am I drawing too far? No, 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 no. I'm, tr- I'm trying to think of a... Uh, give an answer that doesn't sound like I pulled it out of my butt. Um, <laughs> I mean, was this, was this, um, this was after, was this 98 or 99? This is 97. So we're no, no, still but when the, when a couple the, years ahead of, of uh, the shootings in Colorado. Okay. Cause I was thinking that kind of turned everything around where, yes. where like, everybody just started of course you know if, if you read like you know the book columbine all that you know oh they listened to the devil's music and they watched all these violent movies and they were picked on and it was all horse shit horse right. shit um but that didn't and still does not disabuse a lot of people of the notion that people who are into horror movies you know have a capital p problem yeah. And, and you know that that you they are walking a very thin line you know be, you know, between being a normal person and then going out and doing the kinds of things that are depicted in these movies and you know i i have to imagine you know as you were saying that that wes craven was unhappy with that perception that you know and felt that you know questioned whether or not he you know, whether inadvertently and not or not contributed to that mindset or you know of, of you know lawyer you know, defense attorneys talking their clients into blaming outside influences for doing bad things you know if he kind of you know helped that along 
Yeah. The philosopher in him at least had to bounce the idea around. I think ultimately he does not believe in his heart of hearts that the art he's creating and the films that he's creating are somehow contributing to the problem. But because the conversation is happening, he needs to mull it about. And that's that a compelling factor for him. I think it's good for horror filmmakers to acknowledge that that this idea, you know, perniciously refuses to die. It, 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 yeah. it you know, I think, you know, we're slightly better about it now, although now we have the the whole new problem of whether or not depiction equals endorsement. Right. Which yeah. is, you know, but that's also, that's going even beyond horror movies and, and you know, carrying over into like, you know, movies about the mafia and, and you know, TV shows like, like Breaking Bad and all, you know, as to, you know, well, how is the audience supposed to feel about these protagonists? And, and well, you're supposed to feel that, you know, nothing is black and white and, and, you know, and just because, you know, you just because someone, you know, the, the main character of a movie is depicted doing bad things does not mean the filmmaker thinks that those are good things yeah. or, or that the audience is supposed to think that this is a, you know, a good thing that they are doing. And unfortunately, the nuance in that is really starting to become lost. And, and it seems like it's a generational thing. And and yes. I, I don't know that it's that schools are no longer you know, teaching the idea of the unreliable narrator or that protagonist doesn't mean hero, but, but there's a lot of, and I, and I hate to say, because I do enjoy Marvel movies, but I feel that because it is so, you know, unmistakably drawn, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys in the, in the movies that, you know, there's no room anymore for, you know, a sort of complicated in between. And, with horror movies, I think it's good for, for filmmakers without necessarily mocking the audience or mocking people who think that, you know, as mockable as they might be sometimes, uh, you know, address, you know, okay, you, how do we, you, you, how do we you deal with this perception that, you know, how do we, how do we you know, depict this as, you know, people think this, here's why, here's why it's, you know, it does. It's an idea. It doesn't really hold water. Yeah. Well, we are. Uh, we're aware. I think now, as uh, a, a an audience, of the concept of a journey. Right. The character starts at A, and they progress along a line, and things happen to them, and they their actions cause reactions, and so forth. But it can be very easy to simplify that journey is always an arc towards something better because that is the first media that we encounter are invariably journeys of people who start out ordinary and become extraordinary and there are heroes both big and small. But that's not the only kind of journey that we experience in life. And if that is the only art that we ever see, we're not really exposing ourselves to other real life journeys. Like people who do bad things don't start off like Christine being born bad in a factory, right? Right, right? You make decisions, ideas are reinforced. You take the simpler path towards greater gain. And all of a sudden you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. And 
you know, we have to understand that journey is not applicable to one type of journey. There are many. What, what, I, what I particularly like about the Scream movies and what I think works about them. Now, granted, I, I have only seen the first two. I haven't seen the mm-hmm. other two. Um, I, I, you know, we will get to them eventually. Yes. Um, is what do we, you know, what is the basis of our show? It's talking about the characters. Right. And overwhelmingly, particularly in slasher style horror, the characters don't do much more than, than stand around, you know, waiting to die. They're, yes. they're often, you know, they're, they're often written in a way that the audience is sort of rooting for them to be killed. Um, I just watched a movie last night to, to review, uh, it's a movie called Slacks. And, yeah. and it, it, it can be described as uh, a possessed pair of pants uh, <laughs> attacks a, a... There are worse ideas for a movie, but You yeah. know, it, it's, it's not terrible. Uh, it's not great, but it's not yeah. terrible either. Um, yeah. But they really, really fall back on, you know, here are all these, you know, absolutely obnoxious characters that that cannot die fast enough. And and you know what? I'm really, really tired of that trope in horror. And, and, and I think that in the Scream movies, for the most part, you kind of like these people. And, yes. you, and you don't really, you know, want anything you know bad to happen to them you know i mean like like you know of course yeah that's the whole thing with you know starting making the first kill in in screen drew barrymore yeah and you know it kind of you know plays around with the idea oh she's a little bit of a liar and you know willing to you know you flirt with this guy and tell him that she doesn't actually have a boyfriend but i mean she's also 17 Yes, and, and, and also she's placating somebody. Yeah, and, and yeah, but I think the the easy the the easy reaction to that would be, oh well, she deserves it because she's slutty, and right. and but I think it's like no, she's actually you know you know kind of a nice girl who's you know sort of being you know you know weirdly flirty and yet cautious with this person on the phone at the same time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, nobody in in this one is you know deserves to die. Yes, I think in to the same degree, that's the revolution of, of, of this film and uh, its predecessor is a reversion back to the the first wave of slashers, starting with, uh, you know, Black Christmas. Uh, although those characters are complicated, you don't hate them. Right. Halloween, you have girls who are almost on the verge of frenemies. You know, they're in a small town. They like one another. They're kind of jealous of one another to a degree. They're feeling out who they are as people, and that sometimes causes them to do things they may not be proud of later in life. Unfortunately, they don't have a later in life. So the first Friday, for Friday one, two, three is like, mm, <laughs> because we know the reason why there. Four is also like full of, good people like inter- like like they're characters yeah they're not they're not you know just parts you know what i they're- mean and, and and i think for a very long time you know well up into the 90s is you know well we know the audience is here to see these people get murdered you know let's not make let's not make them too attached to them you know let's yes. let, let's you know make them obnoxious let's make them act like they hate each other you know let's make let's you know you know code the women as being kind of slutty and of course you know you know 
you know, slutty, you know, you know, equal deserve to be killed. You know, I mean, and, and, and I think that, you know, I know we talked about, you know, elevated horror not really being a thing, but, mm-hmm. but I also think that movies that, you know, people would say fall in that category kind of do away with that and, yeah. and, you know, treat the characters as characters. Yes. You know, to, 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 so to, that they to, have shades to them. They right. To, 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 thing. to develop and give nuance to, and, and, you know, in some cases, you know, the audience might uncomfortably relate to them in some way. But I mean, like, when's the last time you've seen a slasher movie from like the mid to late eighties and thought, wow, that guy's just like me. <laughs> you <know what> I <laughs> <mean>? <laughs> yes. Um, and it leans into that, the uh, diagnosis of slashers in particular that they're conservative genre because there's this list of sins that has to be eradicated and that is the point of the killer and it it really loses the plot over time because i think horror particularly of the 80s while wildly creative in many fashions is also uh, heavy on mimicry like oh, yeah. here's something you want but different and as a result the worst traits start to get mimicked as it goes on until it's so terrible that it needs to die a quick death and then scream reminds you no if you if you liked these people or, or at least felt that they were bringing more to the table than a body to be dispatched you might like the movie more and that is very small, but very revolutionary. Right. And that's, you know, that, that brings the, the complicated issue of Randy, mm-hmm. who in the, in the first movie is clearly the audience surrogate. Yes. Uh, you know, which is, which is why he gets to live. Um, yeah. He, because, you know, nobody wants to see themselves get murdered on screen. <laughs> but he's, he's bruised. He's battered. He's, he, he doesn't walk away without scars. But he also has a journey that one would think would improve him as a human being. Right. But in the second movie, you know, he's gotten a little toxic. You know, Mm -hmm. he's he's gotten a little, you know, his his, you know, knowledge has has turned him into kind of a a, sort of cynical know-it-all. Right. And, you know, his attitude is not particularly helpful. You know, he, he, you know, is probably a bit of an anchor that prevents Sydney from being able to move on with her life because you know he for whatever reason I don't know followed her to college yeah he's just fucking weird yeah he he like went to the same school with her you know he's following her around you know you know shooting you know daggers at her new boyfriend and (laughs) you know he he I, I think that he sort of felt like because they were both you know, survivors of this, you know, instant the Woodsboro murders that, mm-hmm. you know, she would cling to him and turn to him. And, yeah. you know, it doesn't always work like that. You know, she no. wants, she wants to move on and put this all behind her. And, you know, as long as he's around, she can't do that. Yes. I, again, yet another level to a screen movie that. So, you know, just, maybe, maybe the audience, you know, now the audience kind of uncomfortably relates to him, you know, where, whereas, whereas in the, in the first movie, it's kind of funny. It's like, oh, this guy's just like me rattling off, you know, trivia about horror movies, and, you know, joking about how he's still a virgin and all, you right. know, and then like, and then like, uh, you know, that you're watching now, it's like, oh, this guy's 
kind of like me <laughs> doesn't doesn't know where he's not wanted you know? like, yeah. Yeah. yeah and his progression to a certain degree stops there in in the in the first film and so he's kind of a his soul is a ghost <laughs> it died that night it, the, and he needs to resuscitate it and his idea of resuscitating it is well, I'll keep recreating the conditions of the first film, hoping hoping for a different result with a person that I I obviously love. You know, I'm in, infatuated with. I wouldn't even call it love because love requires sacrifice. I think it's infatuation. Right. He's always been infatuated with Sydney, and that's a candle he refuses to snuff, regardless of the damage it does to him or her. Right. Damn. Scream, everybody. <laughs> It's pretty good. Okay, deeper than you think. <laughs> uh, speaking of deepness, uh, Derek uh, is waiting for Sid outside of her door. <laughs> and he says, when this is over, I'll be here. I'll still be here, which I think is the new I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the idea where I'll, uh, I'll be right back that I, works for me because I don't agree with it in the first film, but I definitely agree with it here. Derek is then dragged off by his uh, frat bros and Lois and Murphy. <laughs> I, I really need to get to the bottom of why they're called Lois and Murphy though. <laughs> and this leads to perhaps the best uh, needle drop in the entire movie. And that's simply because it's John Spencer blues explosion. <laughs> Fuck. I love John Spencer Blue's explosion. And I was a little disappointed when it came on. I'm like, oh, see, now I can't rule against the entire soundtrack because it's John Spencer Blue's explosion. And it also still fe- it does feature briefly red right hand again. So it, it yeah. you know, I can't I can't entirely dismiss it. No, 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 no. Um, you know, that being said, like it's not like Scream found Red Right Hand in, in an abandoned field and said, I, I will resuscitate the no, it was the good a, it name was in a, this it was, track. It was in a Batman, it was in Batman forever. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was in X Files before that. That's like, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Worked on it before, you know. It was a a popular needle drop. It's just that everyone wasn't interconnected to understand every needle drop they heard in, in a TV show or, or motion picture. Uh, TV shows in particular were not known for great needle drops at the time. No. Uh, so he is dragged off uh, to. This is a good, uh, this is a good thing. That, this is a good thing to do to someone when when your your uh, your child would be set upon by a serial yeah. killer. Just you know, kidnap them and drag them off somewhere. Yeah, get forcibly make them drink while tied to a cross. <laughs> pour pour beer down their shorts is great it's a great idea when the entire college campus is on curfew because four dead bodies have been discovered (laughs) again not a myth not a local legend like this is actively fucking happened and people make the same goddamn stupid decisions and we say to ourselves and said to ourselves for for the the entire length of this podcast history why would people who know danger is about do something so stupid well look around everyone <laughs> yeah i was going i was going to say that that it, it seems implausible to me that you know the first thing people would think to do when faced something like this is oh well, let's have a party yeah but but you know at the same time we are you know into the second 
year <laughs> of quarantining. That's some dystopian shit. You ever think you'd yeah. hear yourself say that? No. We were like, it's the summertime. Impossible. <laughs> no one will survive. Surely this will be but a few months, a blip on the radar. Yeah, yeah. we'll all be, you know, by Halloween, everything will be back to normal. But yeah, yeah, you know, the idea that, you know, you still have people insisting that masks are suffocating. No. That that uh, did you see uh, uh, formerly sane um, uh, Naomi Wolf is it who oh, yeah. uh, who said that she you know she can't bear to look at children anymore because they have forgotten how to smile. Oh <laughs> fuck you! Fuck you! As a person who ha- happens to have a child around and has had that child around constantly, this is not a problem. No, children, children, are, children are, are way more adaptable at this kind of thing, but they shouldn't have to be, of course, but yeah. they are way more adaptable at these kinds of things than adults will ever be. Yeah. But yeah, they I don't... mean, yeah, but it, it's, it's absolutely, you're absolutely correct that, you know, this is proof positive that when we see people in harm, we're doing stupid things that maybe it's not all that far off from reality. Yeah, we, we assume that people are smarter because we've all seen people make smarter moves. But in the end, we're big, dumb animals, and we make selfish decisions all the time. And here is a selfish decision where this repercussion could not wait. These people all feel like death cannot touch them. And to a degree, that is what slasher movies are ultimately about. They're about uh, an older generation getting young people on camera in the prime of their lives and saying, this is not forever. And I'm going to show you how that can happen. Now it's unlikely, but death comes for us all. And sadly, not all at the, uh, on a nice porch with a cup of coffee next to you when you're 92 years old. Right. Fuck. Scream. everybody! (laughs) Yes. Yeah, granted, we might be giving it a little more credit than, than they actually intended, but you know, that's okay. It's better than giving them less credit than what they intended. Yeah, I mean, listen, if, let's compare this ever so briefly to Leprechaun 4 oh, in God. space. <laughs> All right. They're both Which, films that are projected onto a screen. Yeah, they were and both And that's films. about the beginning and end of it. Yeah, they're 24 frames per second to give the illusion of movement. And that that is the comparison in which they are both equal. Uh, and they're both attempting to be entertaining, so they've got that going for them. One, one, one survived, one survived, and one did not. Yeah. <laughs> um, but ultimately, in in that circumstance, like Scream has ideas that it is playing around with that are more than this dentist needs to launder his drug money. <laughs> we need excuses for this woman to show her naked breasts on camera. Yeah. <laughs> let's come up with let's come up with some absurd gag about how it's how she announces that, that someone's about to die, which is like that's yeah. the stupidest fucking thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Truly, truly, truly. Uh and as such, like Scream is, dare we say, elevated in that sense. It is quite squarely aimed at teens and young people. That is not to be said that it cannot be enjoyed by more because it has more to offer. It might not be earth shattering, but in a certain sense, given how many of these films we watch, it is kind of earth shattering because it is 
better than normal. Yes. And it helps that it has a great writer and it helps that it has a, a truly great director at the prime of his powers. Um, so speaking of which, um, we we pretty much talked about the, the cop car sequence, but we, what we didn't get to is Officer Andrews and Officer Richards. When Sid is taken off, um, Andrews is driving, and uh, who we have to assume is Mickey under the ghost face, uh, smashes through the window and slashes his throat. Richards gets out of the car and <laughs> keeps threatening him with the gun instead of shooting him. Yeah. Um. I'm not going to get on a microphone and encourage police shooting people because I live in a society. I'm a joker. That also, way. he's not only aiming a gun, he's aiming a gun at him while standing in front of the car, which, yeah. which seems unwise. <laughs> and it turns out that TJ Hooker on top of that car and goes for a ride. I was going to say, and it turns out to be very unwise. Yeah, truly, truly unwise because his head gets impaled by some rebar or a pipe uh, at a construction site, um, leading to, I think, the standout suspense sequence of the entire film. And if I were to argue the entire Scream franchise, it's just really well done. It's uh, a beautiful Hitchcockian level suspense sequence. And Craven has often been uh el you know hoisted uh, and put on a pedestal for his ideas the man had great ideas ideas that sometimes outscaled his ability they certainly uh outscaled the budget that he was given but here he's given time place resources and knocks it right out the fucking park so anyone comes to you and go well you know he's not the greatest director Sit through that fucking sequence and tell me that guy is not a great fucking director, right? I you people cannot do it, and if you you come to me with it, you're fucking out of your gourd. Yeah, no, exactly. So we have this entire sequence in which Sid and Hallie uh, get out of of that car, walk away from it, and Sydney is pulled in by that same old bullshit, right? That same need that brought Randy across the country to stick with his infatuation. She's like, I have to know who's under this mask. And it gets Hallie killed. Yep. It just does. There's no, no, I don't blame Sid necessarily for the desire to know who is out to kill her. I think we would all want to know that information in, in her place, but she puts her need to know above the safety of herself and her friend, a friend who has put herself in danger only to keep her safe. Only the only reason Hallie is there because she doesn't want harm to come to Sydney. Right. And Sydney gets drawn out of that and, and gets Hallie killed. Now, if there's any character, in this motion picture who gets the short shrift when it comes to character work. I think it is Hallie. Yeah, I would agree with that. Her defining trait is that she is Sid's friend. And I think she needed and deserved much more. It would have been nice if she could have made it through the years. It, 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 you could have wounded her gravely. <laughs> I, 
I'm, I'm wishing for this person to, you know, somehow lose a limb or a finger or something like that. But I don't, I don't think the film is improved by her dying necessarily because it really casts Sydney in a bad light. And I don't think that character deserves it, nor do I believe that Hallie deserves it. No. It fucking sucks. Yeah, I would, I would, I, I concur. It does highlight, though, this film's addiction to pleather. <laughs> Everyone is wearing a fucking leather jacket in the hottest, like, it, it, this is filmed in, I believe, Georgia. And I can't imagine how fucking hot it might have been underneath those coats. No. Meanwhile, Gail runs into Cotton, who has literal blood on his hands. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's, and he's just like, I love it. Like, like you, know, he, he can't figure out why she's afraid of him. And he looks at his hands, like, oh shit. <laughs> oh, you know, on second, on second glance, uh, this does not come off well. I know this doesn't look good. <laughs> yeah. Also, did he leave Dewey to die? I mean, he may have thought Dewey was dead. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, how how great is Dewey at being unconscious that multiple people think this guy's fucking Well, that's dead. why I think initially he was, I, I again, I have no proof of this, but, you know, the mm-hmm. way that his death is filmed mm-hmm. and then the kind of throwaway, oh, well, you know, they only, they only got scar tissue. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, that he was intended, he was supposed to die. Yeah. And then at the last minute, maybe before, maybe after the, the script leaked or something, maybe they rewrote that he survived to the end. Um, or or they filmed it to cover their ass and decided after the fact yeah. whether or not they were going to keep them. You know, I certainly, you know, if I had not seen the movie before and, and remembered that he does actually live, I would have thought he had died. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it makes sense that, you know, I was trying to help Dewey, you know, as if to say, but he died. <laughs> because he got stabbed in the back like six times with a very long knife. <laughs> and spit up blood which is never no never, that's never, never i mean unless you just got like a mouthful of red vines that's never a good <laughs> sign of anything you know over the course of the nearly five years we've been recording the show you've you've brought the the mouthful of red vines to the table many times it makes me laugh every time <laughs> but i also wonder how you eat red vines <laughs> well clearly I, I chew them up and then why don't we spit them out of my mouth <laughs> Like uh, like Quentin Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> it's like your level, your kind of chaw. Like you, yeah. like you're, it's your chewing Just tobacco. Great handfuls of red liquor. <laughs> Wandering around like a regional hockey player with a spitter filled yes, with exactly. red liquid. <laughs> <laughs> That amuses me to no end. Um, so Gail uh, runs outside. Who happens to be at the uh, payphone, uh, quote unquote, filing a story? And that's Debbie Salt. Uh, and she's like, I got your fucking story. And yells into the phone, oh, my God, it's Cotton Weary. He's killing everybody. Um, meanwhile, Sid has finally ran, run back to campus, which I, <laughs> okay. It need, the script needs her to run back to campus. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. The, the entire town wasn't fucking shut down, but okay. Uh, it's a police station she knows of, but she doesn't go to the police station. Once she hears 
the sound of the show that she's going to be doing later in the week, which I don't think is going to be presented everyone. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah. If you had tickets to, to Cassandra or whatever the hell they're putting on. No it's not fucking happening. <laughs> but she hears it playing. She's like, well, I got to go in and investigate this. <laughs> Do you see me? <laughs> is that important um, right now? Yeah. But no, she feels a calling. <laughs> the script is telling her to do certain things and she has to listen to it. So she goes in there and she discovers that her boyfriend has been essentially crucified and uh, t- onto this cross, uh, tied up to it. And as she's trying to get him loose, who happens to be there but Ghostface, who reveals himself to be the one, the only Mickey who has a very delicate uh, blood uh, trail on his forehead. And, and an extremely complicated plan for how he's going to get away with this. Yes. I I think it comes down to this. Mickey has one good plan and one bad one. <laughs> <laughs> and they're very tied up with one another. So you kind of you kind of have to view him based on 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 the the poor planning that he shows in this particular circumstance. The good one is to blame Derek. That works out great. Right. That 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 whole scene is also very tense and very well done where where you know he almost manages to convince Sydney that Derek had something to do. I think yeah. that I think that's very I think that that's very very well done. On the other hand, I I am glad that Debbie Salt you know basically you know, dismisses Mickey's plan to to be arrested for the murders you know, have a have a you know very heavily publicized trial and then be let go because he is found to be insane be very stupid because yes. that is an extremely stupid plan and 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 I don't know that it would work. And and, and and I kind of like, okay, Mickey, but what is your long game here with, with yeah. this? Okay, you get arrested for these hideous murders. You fake being crazy, or is he actually crazy? I think he's genuinely crazy. I and mean, this is the era in which uh serial killers could get on television for interviews. Right, but how often somehow- how can you think of anybody who was, you know, arrested for a serial murder that was in fact found to be too insane to stay on trial? Uh, no, <laughs> no. And it's I like, well, okay, okay, and, yeah, Mickey, you still are going to go somewhere. You know, right. they're, they're not going to just send you home afterwards. Like, well, nope, he's too crazy for trial. Let him go home to mom. You know, yeah. like, you will at minimum go to a hospital, poss- yeah. possibly for the rest of your life. So I'm not sure. I mean, granted, he's like supposed to be like what 19. I mean, you know, 19 year olds are not really known much for you know, you know, their foresight. But but mm-hmm. you know, it's like okay, Mickey, you you know, you get your trial, you you get off on an insanity plea, you get your moment in the spotlight. Then what? Because <laughs> you, know, I mean, you you don't actually think that you're going to just be able to go on with a normal life like nothing ever happened. So yeah. I, I'm glad that Debbie Salt pointed out, you know, you know, kills him and then says his plan is really dumb. <laughs> because it was and really it seems dumb. to be a the Loomis family trait where they latch themselves on to people who will willingly kill other human beings. Yeah, that's some, that's their some power, goals. That's some power manipulation there. Now, I mean, I I, mean, I, I get that you know Billy was a stone fox, and that and that you know <laughs> you know Stu might have been a little in love with him. 
Sure. But, you know, the whole, both the mother and the son being able to, like, that's some, like, law and order shit right there, you know? I mean, oh, yeah. Where, like, you know, both of them can manipulate people into killing for them. Yeah. I I think it's a family trait if they had only used this for good instead of evil. Like, they might have taken over the world. Yeah. Like, they're great at it. Um, This section of the movie does feature a lot of Mickey dancing with a gun in his hand where he keeps directing people around with it instead of fucking shooting. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's a lot of decorative aiming happening <laughs> while he monologues. <laughs> um, well, I think that but, in itself is kind of a, uh, a, a sort of parodying the, um, uh, what did Roger Ebert call it? The fallacy of the talking killer mm. where, where, you know, you get captured by the killer and instead of them just killing you, they they basically explain their entire plan to you, yeah, for for no reason, and then just you know basically you know, just draw it out as long as possible. And I can't say I hate it because I love it in things like oh I don't know Happy Birthday to me, like <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that fucking explanation is worth the price of admission. Like you, that is what you came to watch, everybody. Um, so it's not that it doesn't have its delights, but at a certain point, I do think they could have drawn down the amount of dodging columns and the dancing about on the stage a little, little bit more. It, 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 it's, a, it's a lot. I, I know they're trying to set up suspense and everything, but thankfully, uh, Mrs. Loomis and Gail arrive. Uh, I, it tries to play off that maybe Gail, that, uh, somehow Sydney thinks Gail might be in league <laughs> ever so briefly, but then it's very quickly uh, revealed to be Mrs. Loomis, whom Gail has zero idea that this is the mother of the serial killer that she reported on and wrote a book about. Right. Like she never fucking looked at a picture, like a family photo or anything like that. Well, I mean, that's, there's that's only a, so the, much sixty pounds and a little bit of work done can do. Well, that's why I think it's it's you know if you if you go back uh, over the movie and I, I meant to bring this up in the last episode but I did not. Um, it, it's pretty again. It's pretty clever that at, you know even though uh, Sid is besieged with with press wherever she goes. Yeah. At no point is Debbie ever amongst them. Right. Why? Because Sydney might recognize her. Yeah. And, you know, it's one of those things you, you don't notice, you know, at first. And then you, you go back, you're like, yeah, right. yeah, she was never around when, you know, with the press, even though she seemed like a pretty, you know, ambitious reporter and, you know, you know, intent on helping Cotton get a story out, just like Gail was. And, okay, why is she never around when Sydney's around? Yeah. It, uh, and there's a lot of coincidence. I mean, obviously, like there's some movie logic. Oh, of course, yeah, here, yeah, but yeah. But they, 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 you know, they, you know, they were careful to, 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 you know, make sure she doesn't. She never sees her before at any point. Yeah, it does make me wonder if she always knew she had to manage Gail. Like, was this always part of the plan? I mean, obviously, she's not going to expose herself to Sydney, but. Did she come up with the idea of managing Gail's knowledge of what's happening? Was that always a part of the plan? It it does. It is interesting to see like where where did this all come from from her end of the bargain? Well, you know, of course, and this is true of a lot of movies with with uh, 
you know, villain motivation, uh, um, where, you know, it doesn't always hold up to scrutiny, but, yeah. you know, if you don't, as long as you don't think about it too much, it, it, it's fine. And of course, uh, we have the, even though guns have now been introduced into this final sequence, the, the firing of them, of them is, is very minimal because we have to have a lot of physical action rigmarole. So somehow, uh, Sydney gets around, uh, Mrs. Loomis's, you know, gun sight gets behind the scenes and starts stage managing the play with a fire ax and lots of sparks. Like John Woo is like, wow, that's a lot of sparks. <laughs> like you had some doves to that. We got ourselves a movie, everyone. Sadly, there are no doves. There is stage smoke and a lot of heavy prop work. Like if you have falling elements, they're not really heavy on stage. Everyone, they shouldn't be. Uh, no one should be educating you in a in a collegiate class to make uh, huge boulders very heavy, so that when they fall on you, uh, you're damaged in some way. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a good point. Yeah, 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 yeah. Debbie gets kind of over overtaken by what should be a bunch of styrofoam bricks. <laughs> she very much does but that also allows her to pop up and we have a bunch of pop-ups here right we like i'm dead i'm not dead that that goes on um and as such um <laughs> a lot of wasted bullets at various places like mrs loomis not a great shot <laughs> even though she plugs mickey pretty well when she goes after sid she seems to miss wildly um, and somehow these, uh, this is a wonderful Craven sequence where he goes full on, uh, Dario Argento opera. Like the entire backstage is Dutch angled. Like it's the penguins lair. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of, a, a lot of running to no exits that happens. <laughs> she's, she's kind of given the bums rush here of business where it's like, how do you make th this this idea that you that Laurie Metcalf can't get off stage, <laughs> just kind of like running to the edge of things and going, whoop, 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 whoop. Um, you know, what are you gonna do? <laughs> it mostly works, it only kind of doesn't, but emotionally, it's very, very true. Uh, and in the end, uh, she's undone, uh, by a combination of factors, uh, one being the fact that Gail is not dead, everybody. Yeah, Gail, Gail could take could take a beating too. Yeah, she sure can. She can fall off a stage. She can take a gunshot to the gut. But of course, you know that's very painful. But you can live past this, especially if it whizzed past every um, major or, course, every major organ in your in your abdomen. Yeah, and, and of course we, as we mentioned earlier, Cotton gets involved here. <laughs> it's dangled in front of him that hey, maybe instead of like uh, killing me, you'll you'll kill Sydney because she put you in jail for a year, and he very much considers it. Yeah, again, it's like you know, okay, what's going to be the long game for this? Yeah, uh, but. It, he does play it off well enough that, that Mrs. Loomis kind of exposes herself in dumbfoundedness. She's like, hmm, I don't know. Oh, what? You're not going to take me up on it? And then she just kind of leans farther away from Sydney's throat with that knife just long enough for Cotton, who apparently is pretty good with a handgun to just plug her something fierce. 
then we're left with the, uh, you know, we're going to stand over the body until it jumps. Uh, and then surprise, surprise, it's not the Loomis that does it this time. It's Mickey. Uh, and then Sydney puts one through Mrs. Loomis's head for good measure. <laughs> Why not? Well, at this point, like she gets to walk away from this. Everyone, <laughs> Like she's not like, Hey, we're going to have to do some more questioning here. She just wanders into a fucking field <laughs> the end of it during a helicopter shot. <laughs> I would think that they obviously they're not going to arrest her or everything, but you know, you need to come in for questioning. You've witnessed a lot of murders as of late, including two police officers. Yeah. You, you seem to be the central focal point of all these murders here. You, you, you you didn't do them maybe, but you had something (laughs) to do with them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Maybe we need to, maybe we need to keep you away from polite society. Well, we at least need to know like a definitive timeline of events. <laughs> That's what I think you, you really need to nail down here when there are this many dead bodies piled up. But that will be for another day. Um, then we're pretty much at the end of Scream 2. Anything else we want to talk about? I like that. This this uh, it, it was much better than I remembered. So if you if you if you kind of chalk up all the scream sequels to be relatively low quality, um, give this one a give this one another try. It's it's yes, it's very clever. I would say it, it is a a very worthy successor to Scream. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. You know, as as we talked about earlier, the 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 scene in which Hallie and and Sid are trying to get out of the cop car is is well worth the price of admission. Yes, it's a signature piece, and I would put up the uh, the Gale and Dewey chase into that, and I even like, and the CC death is another one that really works well on multiple levels. It's just all done under pressure, mind you, with a plum and skill. It, it is craftsmanship at work here on multiple levels, right. and I think that is worthy of this being elevated right up to the level of the first scream you know does it what could it exist without that Eh, i think you could i i think given the runtime you could have put in an amount of backstory and had this exist without the original scream and that tells you that it is worthy of a piece of art unto itself. Yeah. As our, uh, one of our guests said in the last episode, um, this movie, it's almost two hours long and it does not feel like it. It, 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 it zips right by and there's not a, 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 a minute wasted on, on extraneous dialogue or, or, you know, any, anything I don't, I can't think of anything in the movie that could have been taken out. That you know, yeah. I mean, every movie could stand to be edited a little bit, but there is no, there's no extra fat on it. it it's not a matter of perfection; it's a matter of craftsmanship, in my mind. Right. It, it is just built really well, and it plays really well, and the actors are great, and it. it's a very good cast, uh, and it just sings. And so that brings us to our the moment in which we sing our our final song of every show. Let's choose your own death venture. That's where we decide of the deaths presented in the film. If we were forced to die that way, which one would we choose and why? Up for bid, we have, um, let's see here. Uh, sla- slashed in the throat. 
in a, in a car. Throat slashing. Um, pipe through the head. Having, yeah, pipe through the head, uh, shot through the heart while you're crucified. Uh, Hallie is um, stabbed to death? Stabbed to death, primarily heart. Uh, it's, you know, the left side of her body. So I, I'm going with a knife to the heart there. I think she's stabbed at least four times. Um, then you have uh, Mickey is shot multiple times and Mrs. Loomis is shot multiple times. Uh, what what do you say, oh, Gina? Oh, gosh. Um, I've been in a car accident. Those aren't fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I've no. never had a, a, a pipe through my head, but but <laughs> uh, I get so anything having to do with car accidents, like, nope, but you can keep that mm-hmm. shit. Um, right. Gosh. Um, I guess I don't know. I, I I do as we as we talk about when we do episodes of Dish by Dish. I love a good presentation. Yeah. So I think I'm gonna have to take uh, uh you know you know strung up on a on a on a on a cross on a stage. Now, Grant, I know I'm gonna be in my undies. That's okay. Yeah. That'd be a, yeah. that's all right. You know, but you get to be drunk. Yeah. You're going to be drunk he's when this probably happens. doesn't really know what's going, what's happening to him, which is, you know, yeah. probably okay. And he gets shot in the head. Shot in the head or shot in the chest? Shot in the heart. He's pretty, right he dies heart. pretty quickly. So uh, He shot through the heart and you're to blame because <laughs> you gave Love a bad name. So, yeah, I think I'll take Derek's way out. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go with Officer Richards. And the reason is thus. It's twofold. One, I've always wanted to be T.J. Hooker. I've always wanted to ride the hood of a moving car. He holds on for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, two, um, I just love Amityville 3D so much that any death involving pipes going through people's heads and through windows is something I'm attracted to. I just, uh, I if just, at the end of this, I, I can burn to death and be a moving skeleton. I was going to say, I, 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 literally, you read my mind. I was literally going to say, I hope that, you know, when they, when they, you know, when the fire trucks or whatever show up and they open the door, your, 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 your skull kind of turns going and goes, ah! <laughs> <laughs> Give me hugs. <laughs> oh, God. We're going to do, we're gonna do mean, that one at some point, right? We're going to do that one of these days because it is fucking insane. That movie is fucking crazy. It's the devil's jacuzzi. Oh, oh my God. Uh, yeah. I mean, and it's depressing is the other part. Like there's child death to it and people are making terrible real estate decisions. <laughs> there's haunted elevators. Oh, haunted yeah. cameras. Oh, <laughs> there's there's a, a, cra- a stuffed fish that goes crazy on a wall. Oh, you gotta love a crazed fish. <laughs> we did t- we did touch a little bit upon it when we did in like a million years ago an episode on a yeah. 3D horror. But I think we need a deep dive into it. Oh, we we need a real examination of what's happening. I don't think it's a multiple episode, no, 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 but no. we need to we need to hit the highlights harder. Um, and you know. <laughs> I do have it in 3D. Oh, excellent. <laughs> when I when I received it, I bought that box set from from Scream Factory specifically because they were presenting Amityville 3D in 3D so I could see that skeleton want to give people hugs. <laughs> I fucking love it. God damn it, I love it. It's trash, but I love it. Um, so that pretty much does it. Gina, where can people find you on these here internets? I write about TVs and movies at the school.net. By the time this goes up, I will have covered all of the, uh, 
the horror movie uh, submissions running at uh, at South by Southwest. Um, so you can look for me there. I am also on Twitter under Porcelain72. Do it today, people. Check it out. Uh, you can find us in all the usual places. Please rate and review us on iTunes. You know what? This is time for this is special announcement time. Okay, everybody. Uh, sometimes people fall off at the end of the episodes. You really shouldn't because you never know when you're going to have fantastic information coming your way. April is going to be special. All right. It's not just going to be another month here. All right. We get, we had lots of ideas about what we were going to do in January and February and they all fell off. But you know what? We got a real doozy for April. That's right. It's animal attacks. April all month long. We're going to go through the decades and we're going to talk about when animals want to peck your eyes out and, and chew your bones. Uh, and and uh, we're going to start off with a real doozy. 1979's prophecy about a mutated bear and a lot of people who shouldn't pretend to be indigenous pretending to be indigenous. <laughs> One of the worst characters of all time in a motion picture. Yeah, you want to talk You want to about characters that just are, are just deserved to die. Yeah, do you want to see gutted? <laughs> this this movie presents you with multiple uh characters including the lead. I mean, <laughs> holy fuck. This dude, you uh, watch Prophecy. It is available currently for you to see and you need to see it. We're going to be watching animal tax movies all month long. We're going back to back to back here. Uh, at the end of April, we will get back into uh, uh, Hannibal for season two uh, and so much more. But during Animal Attacks April, if you have a favorite animal attack that you've seen on movie and TV, put it in your review on iTunes or anywhere that you get podcasts. And we will talk about it right here on the air. That is our solemn promise to you, the Kill by Kill listener. So don't worry, folks. The body count will continue, and we're going to eat out on it. Believe you me. Uh, for myself and for Gina, bye-bye, everybody. Bye.